1: Praise God, it's so good to see everyone here today. Today, we begin a new section of the Bible, the New Testament. As you know, we've been going through the entire Bible week by week, and today we're going to cover four books, the Gospels. Now, some of you might be wondering, you know, why do we call the four books the Gospels? Well, the word Gospel means good news. And the Gospels cover the best news that ever came to mankind. It covers the fact that changed history. Jesus came to be born, to live, to die a sacrificial death, and to be resurrected from the grave, to defeat sin and death. But the Gospels, when we look at them, they're not biographies. They're not journals that are written about everything that happened in Jesus's lifetime. I mean, there wouldn't be enough books that would contain that. But they're written to communicate, as orchestrated by the Holy Spirit, to communicate to a certain audience about a certain point about the character and the mission of Jesus. So they're all similar but they're all very unique. And they, you know, John wrote in chapter 20, and I just want to read a verse. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So many other things Jesus performed, but yet they're not written in this book. But the Gospels cover basically the early life, the miraculous conception, um, the Annunciation to Mary, and how the Holy Spirit would come and overshadow her. It talks about the flight to Egypt in order to save Jesus' life because Herod wanted to kill him. And then Jesus apparently lived a a normal life um, as he returned um, at the death of Herod. He went to Nazareth, and he was raised as a child. We don't hear much about his childhood in those early years. But we do know that his cousin was John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist started to baptize on the River Jordan, Jesus went there as well. And this is an event that proclaimed who he was. Because at that time when he went into the water, Father God affirmed who he was. He said, this is my son who I'm well pleased. And it says the Holy Spirit hovered on him. So we see Father God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit hovering in the form of a dove. The Trinity, a beautiful picture of the Trinity. So we know after that, he was uh, sent into the wilderness 40 days. He fasted. The devil tried to tempt him. And of course, he offered him everything God offered him on a different timetable with different requirements. And that is a whole sermon in itself. But we're not going to get into that detail yet. But then we go into, after he was tempted and he passed that test, it validated, yeah, he's ready for ministry. And then he's launched into his ministry. And the people at first are so enthusiastic. They, They love what he hears. He's the predicted Messiah. He is the Christ. And that's the message Jesus was telling them. You should believe in me. I am the promised one. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And secondly, he challenges them to live a righteous life, not like the hypocrites, the religious leaders of the time. So there's a twofold uh, message he has. But later in his ministry, we find that his popularity wanes. The religious leaders are so jealous of him. And so they stir up this animosity and he shifts his message and he starts to, if you look at some of those uh, messages, calls them vipers and hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. He comes down hard on the hypocrisy of the leadership of the religious people. And so part of the message is he shifts to the opposition and at the same time, he spends time. Concentrated effort on his 12 disciples because they're going to carry on after he's gone. And finally, the rest of the gospel deals with his death and his resurrection. You know, the Jews were becoming more and more polarized. Either they were serving him enthusiastically and recognizing who he was, or they had an extreme hatred for him. And during the festival time of the Passover, they stirred up the crowd to the point where they were demanding his crucifixion. And you know the story. He was crucified. Because of a mock trial and false charges, they crucified our Lord. He was buried that day and on Sunday he rose again. That's the message of the gospel. But why do we need four of them? I mean, I just told you that in one brief message. But why do we need four Gospels? Well, there's a reason. Everyone was written from a unique perspective to a different audience to stress a different point about the character and the mission of Jesus. You know there was 400 years. Remember, two weeks ago we learned the last book of uh, the Old Testament, Malachi. After that, there was 400 years of silence. They didn't hear from God, and now Matthew writes the first book in the New Testament. Now it was a very Jewish book, even though it's in the New Testament, because he was. It was a transition point this gospel. It was transitory. And he wrote as an eyewitness, he experienced what he wrote about. And his message, the way he was portraying Christ, was that Jesus is king. He is the Messiah, which is the king, the Christ. And all throughout his gospel, we see repeatedly mentioned if you want to do a little study, look at how many times in the Gospel of Matthew it says the kingdom of God, referring to Jesus. Now, he wrote to a Jewish audience, so he presented Jesus as the Messiah. And right in the verse, first verse, the first 17 verses of this book deals with genealogy a list of parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-great, all the way back. But it's very interesting in this particular gospel. It doesn't go back to Adam. It goes back to Abraham. Stops there. Why? Because Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. So not to read those 17 verses to you, just to take the last one. Verse 17 says, Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, and 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is so strategic. This was so intentional, the way he wrote this genealogy, because he was focusing on the connection. You see, both times it mentions David. David was the greatest king. He was the king of kings at, you know, in the physical realm. And here Matthew was focusing on this to show this was Christ's genealogy, his lineage, and it proved the right that he is the king. Matthew quotes the Old Testament so many times throughout this book, and he talks about the promises in the Old Testament, how Jesus fulfilled the promises and the prophecies. But the most, you know, the word fulfilled occurs 15 times in the gospel. And one of the most famous sections of this book is the Sermon on the Mount. How many of you ever heard of the Sermon on the Mount? Okay. Five chapters, five through seven deals with that. And the people were amazed that I remember years ago um, going to church and before I was a pastor and listening to message, message after message, week after week, I don't know, 15 weeks just on the Sermon on the Mount. So we're glancing through something, but I want to show you the authority that Jesus had amazed the people because they recognized through this um, Sermon on the Mount, this wasn't a mere man. There was something different about him. He spoke with one who had authority. In verse 28 and 29 in Matthew, it says, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught As one who had authority. Everybody say authority. Kings have authority. They recognized him as king. But they also rejected him. We know Matthew. Matthew was a publican, he was a tax collector, he was a despised member of the Jewish people because he cheated the people and collected money for the Romans. So he was used to rejection. And he, the Lord used him to paint a picture of the Messiah, the king, being rejected by his people. And that's how he wrote this book, from that angle. Right from the flight to Egypt, the king rejected him. All the way to the cross. In this gospel, you don't see friends, family, loved ones at the foot of the cross. You don't see a thief that recognizes him and repents. Not in this gospel. He's forsaken, even by God. In Matthew 27, we see about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, lama, 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 sabachthani. I probably messed that up, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was rejected. He was the king, but he was rejected. So that's... Matthew. Matthew was written to the Jewish audience. So now we have the next gospel, Mark. Mark is the shortest gospel that we have. It was written and targeted to the Gentile Romans. Okay? Now, the Romans didn't, he didn't, he didn't talk about genealogy. Uh, he didn't talk about the Old Testament. There was no miraculous conception, no mention of Jesus' birth. He goes right to the ministry time. He goes right to his time when he was water baptized, and he starts his ministry. He even has to explain certain Roman customs to the people for them to understand. And here we see an example of that, Mark fourteen twelve. On the first day of this festival of unleavened bread, When it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations to eat the Passover? See, he was explaining to them. Jews knew what the Passover was about. But to this audience, he constantly explained um, things. He didn't make um, Old Testament references because his point was to emphasize the service of the Messiah, how Jesus came to serve. He came to do. It was the deeds of Jesus that were emphasized. Now, Mark is a gospel of action. And we see the word immediately repeated because immediately and the word then and 12 times chapters start with the word and because it's showing continuous action, continuous ministry It's showing the flow of action. And that is what Romans would appreciate. So Jesus' deeds are stressed more in this gospel rather than his teaching. And his deeds were mighty. They were astounding miracles. I want to read a few of them because look at the hand of Christ. That's what a servant does. Uses his hands. And look in Mark, how he portrays our Lord. So he went, this was when Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. He went, he took her hand and helped her up and the fever left her and she began to wait on them. Later on, a leper came to him and begged him, if, if you're willing, would you clean, would you cleanse me? And Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. Now, understand, lepers, were, they were the untouchable. You wouldn't do that. But he touched the man. He used his hand, and he said, be clean. I am willing. Mark 5, 41, uh, when he went to the home of a synagogue leader, he said this. He, his little girl was sick and dying. He says he took her by the hand and said, Talitha koim, which means little girl. Get up. People brought a man who was deaf. And in verse 22 of chapter 8, they begged, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside. And then an unorthodox thing happened. It says he spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on them. And Jesus asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. And once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and they were opened, and his sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. Oh, boy, there's so much there. God doesn't leave anything undone. He completes the work. He is faithful to complete the work. The touch of his hand doesn't just start, but it finishes the work. Chapter 9, verse 27, it says, Jesus took this paralytic, this man who was from birth crippled. He took the paralytic by the hand and lifted him up to his feet, and he stood. Jesus is shown as the servant, the suffering servant. You know, Mark doesn't mention a lot of things that Matthew did. In Matthew, Jesus was king. The angels were subject to him. But here we see in Mark, in the first chapter, when Jesus was sent into the wilderness, that the angels ministered to him. Says at once the spirit sent him into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and angels attended him. You know, comparing the different gospels as we read them, you know, Matthew went uh, to explain when Jesus went into the temple, he was enraged at the, the fact that they were selling and buying and animals were there and he turned over the tables and with authority, he called them out, sent them out, but not that, not in Mark. Mark, he doesn't even, it says he entered the temple. It doesn't talk about anything about him overthrowing throwing the temples. I mean, the tables. Um, and nowhere in this gospel will you see Jesus as king. The thief that's dying on the cross doesn't mention um, that uh, I'll be in the Lord won't remember him and his kingdom. It doesn't mention that. It's not not that it didn't happen, but the emphasis was not to them, not to the Jew, but to the Gentile. And now Luke addresses an even broader audience. He was a Gentile. He's the only non-Jew that wrote any book in the Bible. And he was a doctor, and he was a meticulous historian. And he wasn't an eyewitness, but he wrote of what he gathered from other sources as the Holy Spirit orchestrated this book. And he portrays Jesus in this gospel, the character of Jesus, as the son of man. 26 times in this gospel. And he gave his mission in Luke 19.10. It says, for the son of man came, why? To seek and to save the lost. And that's the the running theme throughout this whole book. Jesus came as a man to suffer and die, not just for the Jew, but he came for the Samaritan, for the woman, for children, for the outcast, for the pariahs of society, for all of mankind. He came with a mission to seek and save the lost. In Luke 1:26, we see the fullest details of Jesus's birth. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married, a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Here, this young Jewish girl, every young girl was waiting for the hope that the Christ, the child, the Christ child would be birthed through them. And here, the angel proclaims to her, you're the one. And she says, how is this possible? In verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the holy one to be born will be called the son of God. So here Jesus, he was born, laid in a manger, demonstrating his poverty and his accessibility to the poor. He was laid in a manger to identify with us, mankind. He left the heights of heaven and entered humanity in the form of a baby at the lowest point so luke's gospel emphasizes this manhood coming down to our level to our condition living in our circumstances and yet without sin in luke alone this is the only gospel that mentions that there's no room for jesus there was no room for him in the in the inn people didn't recognize his condescending to all mankind, and they still don't. There's no room for Jesus in our society, in our culture, in our politics, in our education, and sadly, even in our churches, the gospel, the pure gospel, has been neglected. Only in Luke's gospel do we see the shepherds keeping watch of their flocks, and the angel appearing to them. Lowly shepherds. But the angel said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will be great, cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Notice, it's not like Matthew calling him king. He's calling him Savior, He came to save us, to save us from the curse of sin and death, to reverse the curse on all mankind. And he didn't just come for the Jew. He came for all of us. I think for the most part, everyone, except for Erwin, I think, is a Gentile. He came for all of us, the son of man. Son of man is portrayed even when Jesus went to be water baptized. There were crowds of people. And it said, I want to pick it up in verse 10 of the third chapter. It says, what should we do? The crowd, these are the people. What should we do? They were coming to be baptized. And then John the Baptist gave them advice. Verse 12, the tax collectors came to be baptized. And they asked, what should we do? And he gave them advice. And then some soldiers came to be baptized, and they asked for advice from John. They were all baptized. And then in verse 21, Jesus came to be recognized as one of us. It says in verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. He came to identify with us, with all mankind. Now, this is so interesting in Luke. The genealogy I mentioned Matthew started with Abraham, not Luke. He went way back to Adam because that's where it all went wrong. He went back to Adam to show that that sin had to be paid for. In Genesis chapter 3, we see it was prophesied that the Messiah would come. And he would crush the head of the serpent. And we see the genealogy goes back to Adam because Jesus was the second Adam. He was going to pay for the sin of the world through his death. And throughout this this particular gospel, there's a contrast between the son of man, Jesus, and the sons of men. The sons of men represent depraved humanity outside of Jesus Christ in this gospel also we see we see a lot of parables that Luke uses and he there, I want to point out a few of them only in Luke do you see the story of the good samaritan because this one highlights the heartlessness the cruelty the brutality the lawlessness a fallen man, the sons of men, with this story in a contrast. It even it shows the callousness and the indifference of the religious leaders. I'm going to pick it up in chapter 10, verse 25. A religious leader came to Jesus, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and was when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to a place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan. As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense. That you have, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, and Jesus told him, "Go and do likewise." so much packed in that parable because the Samaritan really represents Jesus in that story and we see he had compassion on that traveler. Instead of passing by like the religious establishment, the priest, the Levite, he had mercy. He binds up his wounds. He sets them on his own donkey. He brings them to an end. He makes full provision for him. And doesn't, isn't that what Jesus did? Luke is showing us were those wounded travelers on this road of life and Jesus binds up our wounds he came for the brokenness he is our provider and that's what this particular um i'm sorry let me just look on my okay It contrasts, it shows a contrast between the son of man and the sons of God. He gives another parable, and I want to mention this one, chapter 14, verse 7. When he noticed how guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you might have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, And those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Lord was demonstrating he did this very thing. He humbled himself. He became a man. He took the lowest position. And now God has highly exalted him. As he defeated sin and death, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, praying for you, making intercession for you. Finally, in this gospel, we see a sign was placed over his head, a sign that said, Jesus, the King of the Jews. This sign was written not just for the Jewish people to read. It was written in Greek, in Latin, so that all people could read that he was the one who died for them. You know, Jesus, he put women and children in places that none of the other gospels, I mean, this records how important everyone was. You know, women were second-class citizens. They wouldn't have any hope in the court of law. They were property. And yet what happens? We see Elizabeth and Mary and Anna, the prophetess, and even on the morning of his resurrection, when we see the women were the first to see our Lord. Look at this in verse 24 of this chapter, uh, this book of Luke. We see on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they prepared and went to the tomb. Verse 10 it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, women. We're not given the privilege to approach God in that way. And yet, here was Jesus, the Son of Man, making it accessible for all sinners. There was no outcast in his eyes. There is no outcast in his eyes. The Son of Man came in Luke 19.10. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. All throughout this gospel, we see the progression to the cross. He came to die. That was his mission. And that's how he was portrayed. The son of man rejected by Israel and then offered to the world. And those are the first three gospels. The synoptic gospels. And the final gospel we see written much later was John from a different perspective, because John shows him as the son of God. And right from the very first verse, we see John echoing what was written in Genesis. In Genesis, we say, in the beginning, that's the first line, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be a separation between the waters above and beneath. God said, let there be land. God said, let there be vegetation. And God said, there would be birds of the air and fish of the sea. And God said, there would be animals. And God said, there would be man. Here, he begins this gospel showing that Jesus is God. Because in verse 1. It says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. See more than a man John unveils him as the son of God. He came to his own. And his own didn't receive him. The Jewish people rejected him. Yet to all who would receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. That's who we are. John demonstrates his deity, Jesus, the son of God. He was omnipotent. He called his disciples. He recognized Nathaniel when he saw him while he was under the fig tree. He used. He was the word. Jesus is the living word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We see when the first miracle recorded in scripture was the water turning into wine. And Jesus told the servants, do everything he says at his word. And it happened. Nicodemus came to him and realized that he must be born again because he was dead spiritually. See, this gospel doesn't talk about repentance because to John, he wanted to show that Jesus, God, could only bring life out of death. John 11, we see the raising of Lazarus. Verse 41, they took away the stone and Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, again, it was the word. Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out and his hands and feet were wrapped in strips of linen, with cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let them go. Oh, another message we could spend a week on. But only Jesus, only this gospel mentions this. He spoke the word. Other gospels, he raised Jairus' daughter to life by taking her hand. There was a widow. Her son was being led out of town in the coffin, and he touched the coffin. But to John, the son of God only has to speak. And it'll happen in this book. There's no genealogy because God has no beginning and no end. There's no mention of Herod trying to kill him because you can't kill God. Jesus wasn't a helpless victim led to the cross. Look at this without his divine consent or permission. They never could have hung them on that cross. John 10 says this, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay down on my one accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. This command I received from my father. Jesus is the son of God. John presents him. There was nothing that could tempt him. There's no temptation with the devil because there's nothing that would appeal to God that the devil could offer him. Jesus affirmed who he was. I I hear people say, how do you know Jesus was God? You know, it's not in the Bible. Yes, it is. 35 times in this gospel, he says, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, he is the son of God he affirmed it. John the Baptist affirmed it. Peter, Martha, Thomas, and even John, the author of this gospel affirmed it. John 20 says this, this disciple, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that this testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well, If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. Even that line speaks about the endless infinity of eternal God. That's the way he's painted in this gospel. So this morning, not more than a Bible lesson, how will you respond to God today? How will you respond to the king of kings, Jesus, the Messiah, the one who was sent to redeem the people, the one who was prophesied thousands of times and promised to us, who was born in the exact location at the exact time in history. The kingdom of God is here. If you want to be part of the kingdom, it says you could be joint heirs with him. You could be princes and princesses in the kingdom. It says when you accept the Lord, you become part of the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a kingdom for him. We saw the kingdom of God here on earth last week when we were out in the street. We are bringing the kingdom of God to the people out there. Project Serve isn't just for one Sunday, it's for every day. If you want to be a servant for the King of Kings, I just want you to stand up. Stand up to your feet right where you are. If you want to be, recognize Him as the King of Kings and you want to be part of His kingdom. Will you respond to this suffering servant? to the one who showed his power and might and deeds and signs and wonders and miracles. He didn't just come for the Jewish people. He didn't just come for that time and season. He came for all humanity and for all time as the suffering servant. His deeds are not just left for them. Remember what he did? He touched the untouchables. He touched the sinners. He touched the pariahs of society. And I don't know about you, but before I met the Lord, that's who I felt like I was, distant from him. How could he even touch me? But there's nothing that you could have done or you have done that could keep you from the touch of the Lord He wants to touch you today. I don't know what you need. I don't know what miracle you might need, but his hand is reaching out. If that's you, you rise to your feet as well. Grab his hand in faith. He died. He suffered. So you don't have to. And he served an example for all of us that we are extensions of his hands and his feet. We are his servants as well. Will you embrace him as the son of man? He humbled himself. He condescended. He left the glories of heaven to live in our circumstances, to identify with us, to break down the dividing walls between Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, women and men. There's no separation anymore. There's no wall of separation. You can approach God boldly. I don't care what you've done. He's come for you. He came to all humanity. And don't ever be ashamed of your past. He died a sacrificial death so that you can live. He wants to forgive your past, and he wants to give you a future, a purpose. And finally, will you receive him as the son of God, the one who reveals the father? to all mankind with an everlasting love who sent the Holy Spirit to activate us, to make us alive again, to dwell within us. The Holy Spirit can dwell within you and lead you and guide you. The moment you put your faith in his finished work, you're born again. You're made new and you will live for all eternity as he promised in John three sixteen to 17, we are so familiar with this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but would have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is God's love. And yet I don't want you leaving here thinking that you can live your life anyway, because we're not all sons of the Lord. We're not all adopted into the kingdom unless we receive his forgiveness. Look at Luke. There was a story there, a parable about a rich man and Lazarus, a man who was covered with sores. He was begging at the rich man's gate. And starting in verse Um, 19, this rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day at the gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came, the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you're in great agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers, let them warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And abraham replied they have Moses and the prophets let them listen to them no father abraham he said but if someone from the dead goes to them they will repent and he said to them if they won't listen to moses and the prophets they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead there are still people today who are not convinced that jesus The son of God, the suffering servant, the son of man came to die for their sins. And Luke here gives a glimpse of the state of the lost after death. I mean, their memory is intact. They see the consequences of their sin, and there's no way out. At that point, the rich man, there was no hope. But there's hope today. For everyone who hears this message, that if you would receive his forgiveness, that he would, ref- he would forgive your sin, and you could spend all eternity with him. Just as this story about Lazarus and the, and the, the beggar, we have a choice. We could live and reap eternal benefits. When we receive him or we can die to regret it, we won't live to regret it. We will die to regret it. Now, as we're playing this song, I want to ask you, those of you, you stood for different reasons. Maybe you saw Jesus as the son of God. Maybe you saw him as the suffering servant. Maybe you saw him for the first time as a man who died for you. Maybe you see him as Jesus, the son of God. I want you to come and worship together. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I thank you, oh God. You who have started a work here, Lord, you're faithful to complete it. Thank you, Lord God, for all that you have done. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for mission accomplished. You came, you lived, you died, but you rose again. Thank you, Jesus. God bless you. Christ Fellowship of
0: Elizabeth is a Christian community whose mission is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. You can learn all about us by visiting cfofelizabeth.com. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, as well as at various times throughout the week. If you'd like to see a video recording of the full worship service this teaching came from, you can watch On Demand on our YouTube channel, and you can join us live online every week by visiting cfofelizabeth.live. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Google Play. Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. See you next time.